1: This is a gathering place for people who take seriously their grasp on reality. By the way, I don't say that lightly. When I say revel in wrong think, it's not just a motto. It's, well, it's also a slogan. (laughs) Anyway, I'm glad you're part of my audience. And I have some great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include my friends at uh, HSLAMMO.com, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and governyourcrypto.com. So I'm going to start out just for the sake of those who are recently, you know, who've recently discovered this program, who are kind of new to it, maybe wondering, okay, he sounds pleasant enough. What's the catch? How crazy, how out there is this uh, this Brian Hyde character? And look, I got to admit, I there are days when I sit down behind this microphone and I wonder, what the heck am I doing? Am I actually accomplishing Anything besides just you know, hearing myself talk and, and, and sharing you know what I hope are some thought-provoking commentaries that uh, I glean as I go throughout my day because I spend basically every spare minute that I have looking for insights that give me a better understanding of not only what's happening in the world, but also where I stand in relation to what's going on around me. Now, that's very different from simply just being a news junkie and, and, and going whatever direction the laser pointer is being waved by the mainstream media. I think we all know people who have, you know, followed that pattern. And, and the sad truth is it makes them very uh, manipulable and, and malleable in terms of, you know, where their attention is, what their outrage is. Almost like they're waiting for the daily outrage of the day to be given to them so they know what to go around feeling angry about. That's not the purpose of this program. I am just a, I'm just an average guy, if that. Average guys look at me and go, wow, I'm glad I'm not him. But I'm a guy who has a very strong sense of mission in the sense that uh, there are some things that I believe God has blessed me with. You know, a, a voice to speak, a mind to understand, um, a heart that actually cares about things that, that I believe are of lasting importance. And most of all, a desire to share those things with people who are sincerely and actively looking for the truth. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't disagree with what I say. I hope I hope you are exercising a healthy sense of skepticism in everything that you see or hear or read or or for that matter share with the people around you. I don't know how to say this without sounding just a little bit conspiratorial so I'm just going to go ahead and charge full steam ahead like Leroy Jenkins into this. But there is so much manipulation and and it's not just a matter of a difference of opinion. I've had people say, "Well, Brian, you just uh, you're just not hearing a viewpoint that you like. You know, you just want something that validates what you already think." And like most people, I do have that confirmation bias thing where I do I enjoy finding things that seem to validate what I already believe. But I also want to point out I've been I have been paying close attention, like really applying my thinking skills for the better part of the last 30 years. And what I have picked up on, and I'm sure you have picked on at some le- picked up on at some level, are there are certain patterns of deception or misdirection that seem to appear every so often. Once you start to recognize them, it's not that hard to go, "Hey, wait a minute! Why this emotion laden word? Why that judgment instead instead of objective journalism in in a particular story?" So I don't think it's just a matter of well. You know, you just have different opinions and you just want someone to to fill your echo chamber with music that's pleasing to your ears. No, I think there's something more going on. In fact, as each day goes by, I'm becoming more convinced that the mental manipulation that's being directed at us is being directed at us for the purpose of enslaving our minds or at the very least confusing us so much about what is real and what isn't that we're left in kind of a permanent state of indecision. I mean, I, I have certain very close friends that I hear from on a daily basis. And, and to their credit, one of the things that I love about them is they will send me articles and say, Hey, have you heard this? Have you heard this? And it's not that uh, we're all just obsessed with what's the political class up to. It's just occasionally something comes to the surface and you start to realize, man, I live in clown world. Reality is being inverted in so many ways all around me. And if if you can just take it one step further from that, you have to ask who benefits from this inversion of reality? Qui bono? Who benefits when I am told, hey, that's a uh, swimmer, Leah Thomas? You know, her male genitalia really shouldn't be an issue for the other women on her swim team. And, and they don't even see the, the double think or the contradiction that comes along with, wait, wait, her male genitalia? What? What are you talking about? It's funny, I saw um, I saw an infographic the other day. In fact, I want to share this with you just because it, it struck me as so funny. It has not aged well, this particular infographic, but uh, it it's a, a pie chart. What will happen if gay marriage is legalized? One of the options, uh, it's in a kind of a turquoise color, is gay people will get married. The next one in a different color, a third world war will break out. Another color would be various plagues, locusts, frogs, etc. Will, et will erupt. Um, another one, schools will begin teaching kids how to have gay sex. And uh, the final one, the terrorists will win. Now, of course, the, the infographic is all that turquoise color. Well, gay people will get married, but look at those other choices. A third world war will break out. Mm, uh-oh. <laughs> Various plagues. Uh, yeah, yeah. Schools will be te- begin teaching kids how to have gay sex. Suddenly it's like, okay, this was a joke at the time. I mean, but but now... You know, who knew that this meme would, would be so prophetic? So, in short, here's, here's where I'm coming from. Thank you for sticking with me through that lengthy ex- explanation. Let's, let's bring it back onto the road and out of the weeds here. My goal here is not to, to point you in a direction and say, Him, he is your enemy. You must hate him. Direct your two minutes hate at this person. I don't want to add any more hate or anger to an already volatile and disturbed world. But what I do want to understand or what I do want to add is light and understanding. And most importantly, I want to fuel whatever flame of of courage is flickering in your heart right now and encourage you to stand firm in your principles. I'm guessing you wouldn't even have have given this program an, an opportunity, not even the slightest chance. If you didn't have some sense that maybe this will add value by helping, you know, clarify right and wrong or help me realize I'm not alone when it comes to making a stand for right and wrong, or wrong, sorry, for right and against wrong. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I want you to be much more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply what upsets you or what you're against. Okay, tearing things down is easy. I know, I've done it. I've been guilty of it myself, and believe it or not, it's, it's a really great way to build a large, loyal listening audience. You give people demons to wrestle with, and, and surprisingly, they will thank you for it. They will adore you for giving them reasons to be angry. So at the risk of alienating the larger audience that I could be speaking to and appealing to, that's not the approach I'm going to take. I want to give my audience reasons to continue to believe in those things which are good, those things which make life worthwhile. And I want to give them the assurance that you are most definitely not alone even though there are a lot of different forces and different influences and influencers out there that are all aligned for the purpose of trying to make you feel as if you're just some marginalized kook out there wearing a tinfoil hat and running around with your hands in the air screaming. I know better. And I think in your heart, you know better. But you can still feel pretty alone, right? So, here's my invitation. Pull up a chair. Come find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. Challenging the narrative is not just kind of a fun hobby. It's not just a way to distinguish yourself from the mindless masses that are, you know, marching in lockstep and chanting in unison. It's an essential skill that each one of us has to develop if we're going to survive the continued fog and smokescreen of disinformation that's being projected at us on a daily basis, 24-7 from every screen that you have in your life. Sound like a daunting task? Believe me, in some ways it is. All I can tell you, though, is it's worth it. In today's show, we're going to be talking about, among other things, how uh, there's no problem that uh, government can't fix by making it even bigger. So I'm putting fix in air quotes. We'll talk about how humor used to be kind of the last refuge where a person could still speak the truth and get away with it. Well, the Babylon Bee is finding out even satire is no longer safe. I'm also going to share with you, at least in this hour of the show, um, a thought about how we're very trained to think of things in left versus right. Well, are you part of the left wing or part of the right wing? What if we were to think on a different axis and think either in terms of up wing or down wing? Really got an interesting commentary that I'll be sharing a little bit later. Stick around for it. Right now, we'll take a very quick break, pay a couple of bills, and we'll be back just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: By the way, I would encourage you, check out my show notes. I publish them every day that I do the show. I include links to the various commentators and articles that I share. Uh, there are also links to my sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. And if you would like to take seriously the idea of having a little store of food to make sure that you've got something for a rainy day, this is, there, there's no finer place to start. Just click on the link. It will take you to their webpage, and you can find everything to to get you started or to simply add to your existing supply. And they've got everything from uh, family preparedness kits to, you know, MRE cases to the protein case pack kit, the cook stove and fire starting mega kit. Ways to cook, ways to filter your water. It's all covered there. Go ahead, click on the link, lifesavingfood.com. And if you want, subscribe to my show notes. There's an option to do so down at the bottom of the page. All right. So I mentioned there's no problem so big that government can't make it even bigger. Jordan Schachtel, for instance, shares the latest fix to come from the ruling class. It's uh, stimulus checks to fight inflation. Sorry, I'm holding for either applause or laughter on this one. Really? Stimulus checks to fight inflation? Okay. It's already happening in Canada. The question is, could it be coming to America soon? Jordan Schachtel, in his uh, brilliant dossier substack, says, During COVID mania, our power-drunk ruling class went on an unprecedented spending spree, printing untold trillions of dollars, manifesting our current reality that is skyrocketing inflation. Now, in the process, they set a small percentage aside in the form of multiple rounds of stimulus checks, largely to win over a distraught population and keep them distracted from the economic destruction they had brought upon the American taxpayer. Now with 80% of all dollars in existence printed, in quotation marks, over the last two years, the average American is struggling to keep up with the inflation caused by the people in charge of our monetary system. So it might be time for another monetary diversion. So far from coming to terms with their mistakes and acknowledging their errors, the rulers of our fiat system, in their infinite wisdom, may soon decide to fight inflation with, you guessed it, more inflation. Now he says, sounds crazy. No way they would be that ridiculous, right? Well, Jordan Schachtel says, I have some news for you. It's already happening in Canada. Here's a tweet. This is from CBC News Alerts. Quebec adults who earn $100,000 or less will receive a one-time payment this year of $500 to offset the impact of inflation. (laughs) Quick, we got to put that fire out. Put something on it. This bucket of gasoline ought to work. (laughs) Away we go. Jordan Schachtel says Quebec has announced they will give a $500 stimulus check to everyone who makes $100,000 or less. And this handout, which is expected to reach 6.4 million Canadians, will help Quebecers cope with the sharp increase in the cost of living that we've seen in recent months. That's according to Finance Minister Eric Girard. Following Canada's lead, a group of Democrat congressmen have just introduced a bill to hand out gas price stimulus checks to Americans. Now, the timing of this new bill should not go unnoticed, as midterm elections are just around the corner in November. The New York Post reports House Representatives Mike Thompson of California, John Larson of Connecticut, and Lauren Underwood of Illinois are sponsor, co-sponsoring rather, a bill that would authorize $100 monthly energy rebates for any month this year in which the national average gas price exceeded $4 per gallon. Wow, that 100 bucks! Dang, I mean, that's... That's a down payment on a tank of gas these days. Shackles says with around 140 million homes in America such a program could cost upwards of 1 of uh, 14 rather billion dollars every month that gas prices hit the set threshold. Under a full year of this program that cost would amount to 168 billion dollars. Now of course US legislators and the White House could solve the gas price problem almost immediately by implementing a more pro-reliable energy framework. This would lower the costs for taxpayers and enhance America's security and sovereignty by boosting our energy independence. But instead, U.S. politicians, particularly those on the hard left, want to do the opposite and contribute to the inflation death spiral that's already well underway. So he says, with midterms just around the corner and a deeply unpopular Congress presiding over economic turmoil, don't be surprised if Congress gets even more shameless by passing an inflation stimulus bill, which includes a stimulus check to help solve inflation. Now, I don't know if you're a student of economics, but let's, let's revisit that concept of inflation once again. We see it most clearly in rising prices. And can you think of anything in your world that hasn't become noticeably more expensive I mean, if you can't, that's fine. I'm not saying that you're dumb or you're just unobservant. But a trip to the grocery store can be very eye-opening these days. For that matter, if you haven't uh, if you haven't dined out for a little while, and I'm talking fast food, just, yeah, go through the drive-thru. A friend was pointing out the other day, he heard me complaining about my, my $12 burger, fries, and soft drink. And by the way, I didn't supersize anything. I went with a basic single burger, small fry, small drink, 12 bucks. You know, do you remember back in the days when, you know, for instance, Carl's Jr. would would have, you know, their $6 burger. This burger is so fine. We charge $6 for it. This, this is a $6. But the cool thing was about their $6 burger was it cost less than $6. So, I mean, you were getting a real bargain, right? This is uh, This is a burger that other places would charge you $6 for. We'll sell it to you for, you know, four bucks. And we jumped at it because, oh, wow, what a deal. That's amazing. So not to beat the dead horse too hard, but, uh, yeah, this was not a $6 burger. 12 bucks, burger, fries, and a small drink. Not exactly gourmet quality here. My friend just pointed out, well, he said, Brian, you know, at least uh, a Taco Bell, you can still mostly get full on 5 bucks. And I think that's probably still true. But I've got to save up before I go test the, <laughs> test out that hypothesis. I guess the the bottom line is, if you think that the rising prices are are caused by greed on the part of these corporations, and yes, there are politicians who are suggesting this. Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas, we're looking your direction on this one. Nope. It's simply more dollars chasing the same amounts of goods and services. It's like watering down the punch. The more dollars that are added to the economy, the less purchasing power each dollar in the economy has. Now, you may think, well, that's okay. You know, I mean, we're still talking, you know, things are relatively affordable. I mean, gas is expensive. Groceries are expensive. But, you know, it's not that bad. But I would encourage you, think about the people who are on fixed incomes, okay, the widows, the pensioners, the the retired, people who are dependent upon a fixed income. Actually, for that matter, people who have, you know, most of their money sitting in savings. That could be you, too, right? Your retirement savings, every single dollar buys less today than it did a month ago, or two months ago, or a year ago, or 10 years ago. And the rate of inflation is increasing. Now, we're not at hyperinflation. We're not seeing trillion-dollar notes printed up like you would in Zimbabwe or Venezuela or other places. But your purchasing power is being taken away from you. And those who refer to this as a type of tax, they're not wrong. It's a hidden tax And what's worse is it's the kind of tax that can actually be misdirected into, well, you know, it's those greedy corporations. Why, if we just had more government control over them, uh, this, this would be no problem. But again, coming back to the root of the problem, it's because of the creation of money out of thin air under the Federal Reserve banking system, the central bank, and then the release of this money into the economy. It takes a little bit to learn about monetary policy. I'm certainly not an expert, but I understand the more money they dump into the economy, whether it's through stimulus checks or other, you know, misguided ways of helping the public, you know, to, to deal with the problems that the political class has created. It's just going to make the problem worse. So I'll try not to bang the drum too hard, but uh, if, if you have all of your money sitting, you know, in the bank you might want to consider converting some of it into something tangible, some kind of commodity that you can actually put your hands on, something that doesn't lose value or purchasing power as it just sits there. I'll let you talk with wiser minds than mine. There are some great financial advisors out there who can help you make wise decisions. But don't be fooled. It's not just a matter of somehow prices went up and we don't have any idea why. The people in charge of monetary policy... They're the ones causing this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to send some love in the direction of my sponsor, Heather Turner Team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Actually, I was just talking with Heather yesterday, and I, I just have to tell you, she is a wonderful person. But uh, in addition to being a wonderful person, she is also the person I would send you to if you were looking to uh, to get yourself a home loan. Whether it's a VA loan or whether it's a reverse mortgage or a traditional home loan. Maybe you just want to refinance your existing home loan before rates start to climb too high. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has experience and better the clout to make that loan happen quickly and get you the best rates possible. So there are a couple different ways here that you can get a hold of her. In my show notes, under the sponsor links, I provide an email link that will take you directly to her email. You can also call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, people who know me know I like to laugh. Yes, I have a very twisted sense of humor. And and by the way, if you subscribe to my show notes, you'll get a little taste of that because there's always a a meme of the day that comes along with those show notes and and the links to the various articles that I share. In the last few years, I have really appreciated the Babylon Bee for being the voice of reason and being able to say things, albeit with a satirical and, and sometimes sarcastic slant, that nobody else dares to say. And for the most part, they've been able to do this. This is one of the beautiful things about satire. It's been around for a long time. And satire, properly done, gives you the opportunity to, through ridicule or exaggeration, point to trends or thought patterns or attitudes that sometimes need to be skewered. I know the ruling class and those who are, oh, so important. The, the, the thing that they want more than anything is for us to take them seriously to give them the authority that, in their minds, they so richly deserve. The one thing that they just can't handle is ridicule. They do, that's a finger perp, right in their eye when somebody ridicules them and laughs at them. So I guess it's not too surprising that the Babylon Bee has found themselves in the crosshairs. And you probably won't be surprised when I tell you what it is, but I've got an article here from Rajan La'ad. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Shut down by Twitter, Babylon Bee stands up to the tyranny of big tech. Now, maybe you were aware of this, but a few days ago, Twitter locked the account of humor website, the Babylon Bee, for a post declaring transgender U.S. Asicre- US Assistant Secretary of Health Dr. <clears throat> Rachel Levine its Man of the Year. Now, this was a parody in response to USA Today naming Levine among its 2022 Women of the Year. So, Twitter responded very quickly, citing hateful conduct on the part of the Bee and shutting the account down. Twitter informed the bee that, well, we'd be willing to restore your account on the condition that the offensive tweet is deleted. Now, just for some perspective here, the Babylon Bee has over 1.3 million followers on Twitter, which shows its considerable reach and revenue generation. So the easier route would have been to just delete the tweet and then complain. But, admirably, the Babylon Bee's CEO, Seth Dillon, has taken the difficult path of refusing to capitulate. He says, we're not deleting anything. Truth is not hate speech. If the cost of telling the truth is the loss of our Twitter account, then so be it. Now, he says, I've received some messages from people asking how they can help. And he says, I can think of a few ways. <clears throat> Number one, never censor yourself. Insist that two and two make four, even if Twitter twice tries to compel you to say otherwise. Make them ban tens of millions of us. Number two, he says, get on our email list so we have direct contact with you. It's not a perfect solution. Email service providers have censored us too. But at least we own our email list and we can take it with us. Number three, he says, become a premium subscriber. If enough of you do that, we won't need traffic from big tech platforms in order to generate revenue. Now, look, I understand times are tight. Probably, the, you like me, you have to think about where every dollar is going to go. I know I personally have stopped lighting my cigars with $100 bills for this very reason. But if there are sources, whether it be of information or humor or spiritual enlightenment that, uh, that offer a subscription service, I mean, usually it's pretty reasonable. For some of these, you can get, you know, five bucks a month is all it's going to cost you. But I would recommend help support those sources Not only for the value that they provide in your life, but also for the value that they're providing for other people as well. I mean, it doesn't take that many subscribers at five bucks a month to make a really noticeable difference. With 1.3 million followers on Twitter, the Babylon Bee could keep doing what they're doing, which is, it's just brilliant. And the thing I love about them is it's never mean-spirited. You don't see them wishing death on people, although there's, there's a wicked sharp edge sometimes to their humor. It's only wicked because, well, the, it's only sharp, I guess, because the wicked take the truth to be hard. Sorry, don't mean to quote scripture here. But nonetheless, think about giving your support to those, those uh, individuals or organizations that, that are trying to stand for something. Back to the article here. Lodd says, This isn't the B's first clash with big tech. Back in 2020, Facebook demonetized the B's account and removed an article lampooning Democrat Senator Mazie Hirono's comments during the confirmation hearings of uh, Supreme Court uh, nominee Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Facebook claimed that the article was inciting violence and demanded that the problematic portions be removed for the post to be restored. Now, CEO Dylan... Refused, even back then, to knuckle under and chose to stand for freedom rather than Facebook-generated revenue. Now, this occurred at a time when Facebook allowed content uh, such as that generated by BLM's Hawk Newsom, who tweeted, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down the system and replace it. And Democrat Congressman Maxine Waters, who incited protesters, in quotation marks, to harass members of the Trump administration. Now, this goal behind the selective application of restrictions was obviously to ensure total adherence to progressive groupthink, irrespective of how ridiculous such ideas may be. Restraining hate or incitement to violence was the least of their concern. Now, Facebook eventually apologized. They restored the article and the bee's ability to monetize, claiming satire can be difficult for our systems to identify. Now, the bee, which by no means is a powerful media house, should be commended for consistently standing up for freedom of expression. Most articles about the bee call it a right-wing or conservative or Christian satire website. Even right-leaning Fox News refers to the bee as a conservative satirical site. And this is probably what causes extra scrutiny from everyone, including the tech giants. So how does the Babylon Bee see itself? Well, here are a couple of extracts from its About Us section on their website. Quote, The Babylon Bee is the world's best satire site. Totally inerrant in all its truth claims, we write satire about Christian stuff, political stuff, and everyday life. We focus on just the facts, leaving spin and bias to other news sites like CNN and Fox News. If you'd like to complain about something on our site, take it up with God. (laughs) So the specific mention of Christian stuff in Fox News makes it obvious that their primary goal is laughter. They're not ideological. And a browse through the Bee's website proves nobody is spared. Their objects of satire range from President Trump to Joe Biden to even President Putin. Now, this is a drastic departure from most of the mainstream comedy featured on TV and on streaming platforms, whose aim is to advance a political agenda and deride nonconformists. But this isn't about taste or quality of content. Media, by their definition, are a carrier and not a source or recipient. Freedom of expression emanates from freedom of thought. Every amazing invention or idea or literary work was the product of a brave new idea. A society that demands consensus ceases to grow. This is why people living under totalitarian regimes rarely innovate. It's not for lack of talent, it's just that people don't want to risk their lives by expressing a different idea. By censoring and suppressing the wrong ideas, big tech is effectively impeding growth. And Lod says there is no place for such tyranny in one of the world's largest democracies. It has to be remembered that when Big Tech launched its social media platform, it was a place for interaction, sharing of information, and frivolity. In time, they managed to infiltrate governments, corporations, educational institutes, NGOs, the news media, and everybody that mattered to become their official communication channels. They even became a channel of income for businesses and users. During the 2020 presidential elections, the people running big tech suppressed news about Hunter Biden's corruption that implicated Joe Biden. Also, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg donated nearly $419 million to nonprofit organizations that infiltrated the administration and infrastructure of the 2020 elections, which were supposed to be apolitical and sacrosanct. So how do you take on that kind of tyranny? Well, all great journeys start with small steps. So while you can retain your big tech accounts, maybe you should be signing up for some alternative platforms like Truth Social or Rumble or Parler and make DuckDuckGo your search engine or Brave your browser. Urge your relatives, friends and colleagues to join in. You should also visit and support financially these platforms and sites like the Babylon Bee. Bottom line is let's take on the tyrants while we still have the facility to do so. Wait any longer and it might just be too late.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the
1: show. Again, I'm going to put the uh, call out there. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would ask you to please consider doing so. And it's not because they are the answer to all of your prayers and will make your breath minty fresh and your teeth sparkling white just from reading them on a daily basis. I will tell you, I put considerable effort into finding articles and finding commentators and commentaries that do shed some light in, in a very different sense than, than the more ideologically driven media out there. And it's free. It's not going to cost you anything. Actually, it will cost you one thing, and that is your email address, which I will not shell, sell, rather, or share with anyone else. But I will drop a copy right into your email inbox every time that I do the show, and then you can pursue you know your, your journey of knowledge at your own time and your own leisure, however however you would like to. So I want speaking of ideologically driven you've probably noticed that uh, most of the ways that we frame things tend to come down to well is that left wing or is it right wing and that's that's kind of the the paradigm that a lot of people operate in now I shook off those bl- those blinders a few years ago and and sometimes that tends to offend people who have that that very binary way of thinking you're either this or you're that they don't understand there could be a very broad spectrum of political thought. And in fact, there are even there are even schools of thought that fall outside of politics. I know. Imagine that. But I've got a great commentary here from James Pethokoukos. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He asks, what would happen if we thought in terms of up and down rather than simply left and right? The premise here being that a vibrant, resilient society is one with a firm belief that tomorrow can be better than today if we choose to make it so. And he starts with a quote from the movie Interstellar. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. So James Pethokoukos says, Imagine a 21st century politics that explicitly embraced rapid economic growth and technological progress. Not as some sort of line-goes-up-is-good GDP fetish, but because those are the best ways to create a wealthier, healthier, and more resilient society for everyone. Not left-populist, middle-out economics obsessed with redistribution. Not right-populist economic nostalgia for 1960s industrial America. Now imagine such a forward and long-termist politics of progress happening in 2022 America, right here, right now. What might that look like? At least it's kind of like the following, I think. And his example, he gives Ezra Klein, the liberal New York Times columnist, is worried that 1970s-era environmental regulation and thinking is blocking progress on some big issues, including housing affordability and clean energy. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic Magazine, another center-left journalist, has been touting an abundance agenda built around housing deregulation, more immigration, and more government research and development, among other things. Over in Silicon Valley, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen says it's time to build. More housing, more domestic manufacturing, more university capacity, maybe even a hyperloop or two. With the effort aided by deregulation, increased investment, and a can-do attitude. And then there's Elon Musk, an entrepreneur who once described himself as half Democrat, half Republican. He's already innovating and building lots of stuff, electric cars, reusable rockets, and perhaps eventually lots of housing on Mars. So where do you put all of the above on the traditional left-right political spectrum? Well, the answer isn't immediately obvious, or at least it's, if it's not, that's okay. It's kind of a trick question, but the politics of progress really isn't about left or right. It's about up. See, despite what cable news and social media tell us every day, the cultural, economic, and political divide that matters most for America's future is not left-wing versus right-wing. And it never has been. Rather, the key divide that has always been most critical in shaping our everyday lives, our nation, and our world is up-wing versus downwing so a core claim of upwing thinking is this a vibrant and resilient society is one with a firm belief that tomorrow can be better than today that is if we choose to make it so an upwing society is a no pain no gain society it accepts the necessity of change although sometimes really uncomfortable as it tries to generate fast economic growth through scientific discovery technological invention, commercial innovation, and high-impact entrepreneurship. Upwingers are all about acceleration for solving big problems, effectively tackling new ones, and creating maximum opportunity for all Americans. So can folks on the left be upwingers? Absolutely. From its earliest beginnings, the political progressive movement saw scientific and technological advances as key to a more just society. As author and social activist Jack London said just after the turn of the 20th century, let us not destroy those wonderful machines that produce efficiently and cheaply. Let us control them. Can folks on the right be upwingers? Well, you bet. Principled conservatives should be at least as future-oriented as anyone. Society, as the conservative statesman and political theorist Edmund Burke wrote in 1790, is a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Now, downwingers see things a little bit differently. For them, stagnation is an immutable fact of American life. After all, living standards are supposedly no better today than 50 years ago, right? We live in a zero-sum society, and if faster growth were possible, it would merely benefit Silicon Valley uber-billionaire weirdos and harm the environment. Indeed, downwingers think climate change is an existential threat that means rich countries must live more poorly. Downwingers can't imagine what jobs will replace the ones that robots will surely take. Americans exploring the solar system and beyond? What a waste with so many problems right here on Earth. Plenty of downwingers across the political spectrum. Now, the author here says, look, upwing isn't my idea. It's an extension of the right-wing, left-wing ideological framing that dates back to the French Revolution. It was coined in the 1970s by futurist writer, oh, this is an interesting name, Faridown M. <laughs> I'm sure you were just talking about him at dinner yesterday. He's considered the godfather of modern transhumanism, a movement seeking to use science and technology to transcend our biological limitations. Now, Esfandieri himself went by the name FM 2030 because he hoped to live to the year 2030, which he unfortunately did not. Rather than FM 2030, however... The author says, my brand of up-thinking harkens to uh, Herman Kahn, a true American original. A nuclear war theorist during the Cold War, Kahn provided at least partial inspiration for film director Stanley Kubrick's maniacal Dr. Strangelove in his 1964 film Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But the 1970s detente between the U.S. and USSR led to the second act of Kahn's career, that of Futurist. This former strategist of Armageddon became a sunny purveyor of pro-American techno-capitalist optimism. In his 1976 book, The Next 200 Years, Kahn outlined a vision of material abundance and human potential that, at its edges, is nearly as ambitious as what FM 2030 imagined. New and improving technologies aided by today's fortuitous discoveries will further man's potential for solving current perceived problems and for creating an affluent and exciting world. Man is now entering the most creative and expansive period of history. These trends will soon allow mankind to become the master of the solar system. You talk about a major vibe shift. But too much of today's politics on the left and right is downwing politics. Neither Republicans nor Democrats are clearly and strongly championing the idea that faster technological progress and greater economic dynamism need to be national priorities that broadly and deeply inform public policy. Neither left nor right is laser-focused on producing future-oriented attitudes, ideas, and policies. There are up-wingers on both teams, but not enough of them right now. Yet if America is to fully recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and then launch itself into a brighter tomorrow, far more prosperous than almost anyone is currently imagining, it must again become a risk-taking, future-oriented, techno-optimist country, an up-wing country. Believe it or not, we were this way once before, before we were mired in eco pessimism and, and then shocked by a surprise economic downshift. And we still have our occasional upwing moments. Upwing America constructed the transcontinental Railroad and the Panama Canal, passed social security. okay, I don't think that's a positive, but I'll go with it. implemented the Marshall Plan, split the atom, adopted a, a commitment strategy to a containment strategy rather to fight the Cold War, constructed the interstate highway system, landed on the moon and commercialized the internet decoded the human genome etc cetera, etc cetera. so we can do better is the conclusion here but it's it's a matter of looking up rather than simply trying to judge everything in terms of left and right and who gets the most advantage you know because of that left right paradigm so whether you're into technology or not i think this is a pretty valid point of view worth ex- exploring I've got a link to the article on my show notes page. And if you're not already looking up, maybe it's time to start looking in that direction and considering some, considering some of the possibilities for the future. I think we do have better days ahead of us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: this is a place where we gather to revel in wrong think. And it's not because I have all the answers to life's questions. I don't have all the solutions. I don't have the keen insights that will solve every problem in your life. But by dang, I'm a, I'm a veteran truth seeker. I'm a veteran of the war on reality. And uh, believe it or not, you are a veteran of that war as well. So I'm encouraging people to think clearly and independently about the world around them but more than just seeing clearly what's going on around us and having awareness of those things which may interfere with the exercise of our God-given rights, I'm also encouraging you to take a look inward every so often and to tap into whatever it is that is uniquely yours to do in this world. I know it sounds very idealistic, and and for some people it's like, oh, come on, is this just more Tony Robbins kind of stuff? No, I'm speaking sincerely when I tell you. I believe that every single one of us comes into this life with a purpose, with a mission that only we can accomplish. And I mean that from the people whose names are recognizable to you know virtually everybody around the world, to to the nobodies like me, you know, who who really don't have any uh, anything remarkable about them. It's just a matter of there's something that I believe God sends us to do. And I encourage you to tap into that because life takes on so much more depth and meaning when you approach it in that way. And as crazy as things might be getting, there's great comfort in knowing that uh, you are doing something that's yours and yours alone. Because once you tap into that, once you accept and embrace that reality, you partner up with your creator. It's really a marvelous thing. By the way, I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis, and I would like to recognize SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com as one of them. This is where the finest quilters, sewing enthusiasts, and designers buy their supplies, get their machines, get their machines serviced. And look, if you're new to the game, you can actually learn because they will teach you classes on how to use your machine to its greatest possible potential. Fantastic news for my listeners in the southern Utah area, which is where Sewing and Quilting Center is located. It's a wonderful family-owned business. I've got a link in the show notes. I'd encourage you to click on it. Say hi to them. Let them know that your ears heard their message because you were tuned into this program. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about climate change. I don't know if you have been aware of this, but um, for for a long time, like I think since the 1960s, Climate change has been a drum that has been beat for, well, you know, the earth is going to be overpopulated. We're all going to run out of food. Paul Ehrlich, I think, was one who really advanced this back in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, even as a school kid, like a first grader, I remember singing ecological songs. The balance of nature must not be unbalanced. Yeah, and it was, it was catchy but we were very concerned back then there was an ice age coming because of pollution and because of man's impact on the world and climate change. So things have shifted a bit in the last 20, 30 years. Now it's global warming. That's what we have to watch out for. And the point here is the systems that are trying so desperately to consolidate their rule over us have a lot of ideologically driven movements at their disposal, but Climate change is one that has been used to bring a lot of people, the many, under the control of the few. Got a great article here from Alexander Markovsky. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. Climate change, an ideologically driven movement. Alexander Markovsky says, Jonathan Overpeck, Ph.D., a professor and dean of the School for Environment and Sustainability at University of Michigan, is the author of an article titled, Whatever It Takes, posted on the Hill recently. In his article, Professor Overpeck made a torrent of apocalyptic predictions and delineated a host of inexorable and accelerating calamities attributed to global warming. Among the things he wrote, quote, I care about future generations who stand to inherit either an unimaginable climate change disaster or a world transformed that is free of climate change, toxic air pollution, mass extinction, and the terrible economic and health burdens that massive climate change is sure to create. Now, the author insists that success in our battle against climate change requires the deliberate and strategic spending. And he authoritatively concluded that warming and associated climate disasters become inevitable and largely irreversible. So the question that uh, Markovsky asks is, haven't we danced to this tune before? In the mid-1970s, scientists and media overwhelmingly supported global cooling with the same vigor and urgency as Professor Overpeck supports global warming today. The cover of the April 28, 1975 issue of Newsweek proclaimed the coming ice age. In the article The Cooling World, the magazine suggested the disasters similar to those predicted in the article, Whatever It Takes. On June 24, 1974... The issue of Time magazine, the, the article, Another Ice Age, painted, painted a bleak picture for the future of our planet. When meteorologists take an average of temperatures around the globe, they find the atmosphere has been growing gradually cooler for the past three decades. The trend shows no indication of reversing. That didn't uh, age very well, did it? Markowski says, scientists have been telling us humanity will end in 10 years for the past half century. Their track record predicting the future is less trustworthy than the prophecies of the Oracle of Delphi. Carl Grant Looney, Ph.D., in his dazzling book, Climate Change and the Emergence of Civilization, Global Warming, Great Floods, and Ice Ages, assembled spectacularly wrong predictions made by leading scientists around 1970. Does anybody remember the scientific theory of acid rain? Propagated during the 70s and 80s, which was supposed to destroy the forest and poison our lakes and rivers unless we closed down coal-fired power plants? Aren't we happy that President Reagan was wise enough not to trust the science, or rather not to trust the scientists? Speaking of trust, we should be aware that most scientists live off government research, research grants. The golden rule of business, who has got the gold sets the rules, applies to scientists just as it does to everyone else. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that many scientists choose to support this campaign of coercion and demagoguery. The essence of demagoguery is to raise and distill emotions into action. In this case, to push the government agenda even if the stated objectives are demonstrably absurd, such as Dr. Overpeck's desire to have a world transformed that is free of climate change. Now, it's a fact that climate has been in constant flux for millions of years. The collapse of the Old Kingdom in Egypt and the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia around 2200 BC was brought about by a catastrophic rise in temperatures and subsequent droughts. Some may be surprised to learn that the Romans grew grapes in northern England. Hence, temperatures on this planet were a lot higher then. Now, given the level of erudition of of global warming advocates we should wonder whether they are aware that neither the Bronze Age civilizations nor the Romans had cars, factories, oil refineries, or coal-fired power plants. Dr. Overpeck failed to offer any confirmation that human activities are having any impact on Earth's temperature one way or the other, and no amount of pomposity can compensate for the lack of scientific evidence. So apart from greenhouse gases, there are other more persuasive causes, such as the sun's activity. The Earth's reflectivity, atmospheric pressure, and the angle of rotation that impact the planet's temperature. Therefore, there is no reason to be alarmed. What is alarming are the prophetic absolutism and fanatical devotion to the cause by the disciples of the Church of Climate Change. Unable to define their objectives in quantifiable terms, they nevertheless are prepared with a religious fervor to do whatever it takes to justify the unlimited expenditure, strangulation of production of hydrocarbons, and to place the power generation under tight government control. Global warming or climate change is neither an economic nor environmental project. It's an ideologically driven movement. It's an, and in an ideological struggle, the more determined and more vocal side usually wins, regardless of the validity of their arguments. So it doesn't matter whether it's cooling, warming, or ambiguous climate change. It is, paraphrasing James Madison, an instrument for bringing the many under the domination of the few. Again, this is from Alexander Markovsky. I've got a link in the show notes that I will supply so that you can follow up. There's a lot of great links within this article itself. I'm going to throw in an added suggestion, too. If you want to get a really interesting slant on what's happening to our climate that is related to the solar cycles... Go to YouTube and look up Suspicious Observers. Ben is a scientist. I think he may be an astrophysicist. He is really, really sharp. But he has the most unique take on how there is a solar cycle that is at play here. And the uh, sun's electromagnetic energy has very drastic impact on our Earth. And best of all, he releases daily, five-minute-long videos that, uh, you know, a lot of it is very technical jargon. You pick it up as, as you listen and you, you know, follow along. But the bottom line is the sun actually has a lot more impact on our climate as well as the other planets in our system's climates than we sometimes are told. Suspicious observers. That's the one you're looking for. Take a look at the video.
0: See if you agree. Maybe it's a great resource. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we
1: are back. Again, a shout out here to HSLAMO.com. High quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you're, if you're in the shooting sports, ammo has been, it's been getting more and more expensive. And this hasn't just been true in the last couple of years. It's, it's been true for quite some time. Spencer Worthington is the founder of HSL ammo and he is a remarkable individual. Not only has he managed to build a thriving business during very difficult times, But he continues to employ uh, a thriving workforce to provide opportunity within uh, his hometown, which is uh, currently St. George, Utah. And he's just a great guy to boot. So if you are someone who is looking to, uh, you know, make an ammo purchase, can I recommend, talk to Spencer at HSLAmmo.com. Spend your money with him and you'll not only get a fine product, but you'll also be supporting someone who is making a very notable positive difference in the world today. So since we were talking about environmental things in the last segment, I want to continue on that vein for just a a little bit further. When you're standing there at the gas pump, you're probably thinking more about the price. I know I am. In fact, I'm usually holding my wallet and and whimpering just a little bit just because it's, it's becoming kind of painful. But very few people think about the role that agriculture currently plays in how we fuel up our vehicles. Got an article here from John N. Hall sharing his thoughts on the children of the corn and the fraud of renewable energy. This one got me thinking when I read it. He says, In July of 2021, this writer took a little trip through rural Missouri. Besides visiting Kinfolk, whom I hadn't seen for far too long, one purpose of my trip was to simply do something else, something different. You see, I'd become something of a recluse, and I really needed just to go outside, blow the stink off, and maybe even commune with nature, whatever that is. Now, he says, my destination was a spot near the center of the northeast quadrant of the state of Missouri. That's about a three-hour trip by car. The most expeditious route from Kansas City would be to take I-70 to Columbia and then motor north on U.S. 63 for about an hour. Not really interested in expedience, I chose the scenic route, a road less traveled, U.S. 24 to be exact. And he says, driving eastward on 24, what impressed me was the modern world's utter dependence on petroleum. Not only was I leisurely tooling along in my 1990 Taurus, which happens to burn gasoline, but everything I surveyed depended on oil. The lawns and pastures of the rural folk were nicely manicured. All that mowing takes a lot of oil, but that's nothing when compared to the crops, especially the corn. Now he says this corn crop did not look like any corn that this kid could remember. It was lush and tightly packed, dense, even every field looked like it had been planted and cultivated by the same farmer, maybe some corporation. In fact, he says, "I bet a buck that this corn I drove past was genetically modified Franken corn and totally depended on high-powered fertilizers. I probably eaten tons of it in the cheap, salty corn chips I'm addicted to corn." a.k.a. maize, is used not just as food for people and cattle. It's also used to produce ethanol, and not just for boozers, but to mix in with our gasoline. Since 2005, Congress has required oil refineries to add ethanol, mostly from corn, to their gasoline. It's called the Renewable Fuel Standard, or RFS. The EPA runs the program. In January, Reuters reported, EPA will have to decide on the next phase of the program in coordination with the Department of Energy and the Department of Agriculture. The EPA plans to propose requirements in May of this year. Now, Mr. Hall says members of Congress should not leave the changing of RFS to some pointy-headed bureaucrat in the administrative state, in other words, the EPA, but should adjust the program themselves. And he says they should seriously consider ending the program. Or they might consider an idea floated in How to Fix the Ethanol Industry by Robert Rapier at Forbes in 2019. By the way, he links to the article there. To understand just how wacky RFS, or Renewable Fuel Standard, is, read Stop the Ethanol Madness by Mario Loyola, which ran at The Atlantic in in November of 2019. Loyola explains how RFS is not only uneconomic, but is also destroying the environment. Loyola asserts that today's corn ethanol program is a glaring failure and it is unconscionable that politicians of both parties are conspiring to keep it alive despite knowing full well what its problems are. Ethanol has about one-third less energy than does gasoline, so cars using ethanol get fewer miles per gallon. Flex fuel vehicles that use E85 get up to 27% fewer miles per gallon. And a huge problem with corn ethanol as fuel for ice or internal combustion engines is its EROI. In other words, its energy return on investment. EROI is the amount of energy produced against the amount of energy used to produce it. The formula for EROI is the energy output divided by the energy input. So an EROI of 1.0 would mean that you're expending as much energy to produce energy as the energy being produced. So it's a wash, a draw, In other words, utter folly to produce energy with such a low EROI rather. Corn ethanol has an E-R-O-I of 1.5 as compared to gasoline's 11. Okay, now that's starting to make some sense, right? Because corn, because of corn ethanol's low E-R-O-I, you're basically swapping one type of energy for another. Now, how smart is that? So the amount of energy that one gets from corn ethanol mixed into gasoline is just slightly more than the energy it takes to cultivate corn, harvest it, haul it off to the distillers, keep the distillers from sampling too much of their product, haul the finished product to the refiners, etc. Which gets us to the fraud of renewables. They depend on fossil fuels. The heavy machinery used to produce corn ethanol, the tractors, corn pickers, and such all use fossil fuels. There are no electric versions as yet. Now, Rapier touches on this in the above link. So a farmer must use fossil fuels to produce a non-fossil fuel. Biofuels can't exist without fossil fuels, at least not yet. Actually, petroleum is a biofuel. The bio is ancient plankton. Geologists don't think that abiogenic oil can account for what's in the world's vast oil fields. Now, although there are questions about how economic corn ethanol is, its lobby keeps it going. But now that the price of the pump is at all-time highs, it's time to ask how much of that price is due to compliance with the RFS mandate on refiners to mix ethanol into gasoline. Because if it adds to the price of the pump, well, then the RFS program should end immediately. In June of 2021, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers reported the total cost of RFS employment is surging and could be as high as thirty billion point five dollars for 2021. That's more than twice the record high annual program costs set in 2016, and it's eight point five times higher than in 2019, the year the United States reached record ethanol blending. By comparison, the refining the refining um, sector spends sixteen point four billion on workforce pay and benefits. And the situation is so dire that labor groups and Democratic governors have requested relief from the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, he cites a couple of other articles, but I'm I'm not going to go into those at the moment. I want you to check this out for yourself. But notice that the quotes that he provides here, expressing concern about how, you know, this is actually artificially raising the price of fuel, and it's not contributing greater energy in the process. Notice that they're all from before or from 2021, rather, before the added fuel price spikes due to the war in Ukraine. So the historic high prices for fuel are filtering throughout the economy. And the suggestion here is that Congress needs to act, not leave tweaking RFS to the EPA. There may be some movement on that front. As last July, a bill was introduced to end the uh, corn ethanol mandate. However, all that's happened with the bill is its introduction. At this point, it still needs further action. Now, the point here of why we should be paying attention is, you know, we have a world that is experiencing some chaos. Perhaps you've heard Ukrainian farmers may be having a little trouble between missile strikes and getting their crops planted. But if Ukrainian agriculture is taken offline by war, American farmers may be able to make up some of the difference by raising food rather than fuel additives. That is, if Congress will let them. Well, something to ponder next time you're standing there waiting for your car to fill up with fuel.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for sticking it out with me thus far. I don't know if you have uh, thought about dabbling in cryptocurrency. I'm uh, I'm still kind of a noob myself, but uh, I like the idea that uh, that crypto at least at the moment can place some of your your savings off limits to prying government eyes and fingers. Now, of course, the exchanges are the entry and exit points where government is waiting, the IRS is sitting there with a, you know, a, a pen in hand, okay, you know, let me assess how much you owe us for your your good fortune. But uh, if you have thought about getting into crypto, I would encourage you click on the link of one of our sponsors. That is governyourcrypto.com. Hopefully you'll find this something that's uh, worth your time. Uh, there is a learning curve involved. So for some people, it's, oh, what? Learning? Effort? Oh, not for me, man. I want my money to come cheap and easy. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Maybe it's not for everybody. But if it's something that uh, takes your interest, click on that link, support our sponsors, and... Uh, you know, again, governyourcrypto.com. Personally, I'm paying the price right now to learn, and it gets easier as you go, but I think it's very, very worthwhile. So if you've been a listener to this show for any length of time, you'll notice I have a pretty strong emphasis on living in reality, which is not an easy thing. It takes conscious effort on a daily basis to be able to maintain your grasp on reality. And I found the most remarkable article. This is from American Greatness or amgreatness.com. This is written by Amina Melonic, Shattering the Screen of Unreality. And what Amina Melonic is talking about is we have to reject the form of life that's been thrust upon us by the media and the digital world. I love that she starts with, In Plato's Republic, we witness a dialogue between Socrates and Glaucon in which Socrates presents his arguments about reality and knowledge. Now, it's one of the most famous parts in the Republic known as the Allegory of the Cave. In order to show the importance of education, Socrates tells a story about a group of people who are chained in a cavern, unable to turn around, who only see shadows projected on the wall by the exhibitors of puppet shows, who are also isolated from the prisoners in the cavern. Since the prisoners are kept from seeing the real world, they deem reality to be nothing else than the shadows of the artificial objects. These prisoners are half-human at best. They are kept in the dark, as it were, and are not only unable to fulfill their potential, but also have no means to communicate with one another or the world outside of the cave about the unreality they witness. The illuminating power of reality is lost to them. In order to know and to be awakened, the prisoners must be able to move their bodies first and then tend to their souls by way of education. Now for Socrates, a life in such darkness is no life at all. And while the masses may be content with this, it is a philosopher's task to bring about his own illumination and insight by goading such confrontations with it out of others. Now Plato's allegory of the cave has been used quite frequently in our culture, One of the reasons is that the text is perennial and it maintains that human nature does not change despite the passage of time. She also points out that Plato's dark cave is even more appropriate because we are living in the midst of digital shadows imposed on us. There's there's a never-ending repertoire of ideological puppet shows brought on by the corrupt media, ideologues, and their political regimes. And while they keep people in the cave... They also use them as both participants in and spectators of their plans. We are part of the gladiator spectacle, where one day you're in the ring, the other day you're a spectator. That is, if you let your life devolve into that. Just as an aside, I've always thought that Plato's uh, allegory of the cave has been a really accurate depiction of, of how distraction becomes reality. Flickering images on the wall... I mean, I'm not trying to tear you away from looking at your flat-screen TV, but hey, does that look anything like flickering images on the wall? Hmm, just, Just wondering. Back to the article. We are indeed living in the shadows and are stuck in the same pattern of unreality. Now, the COVIDian ideology may or may not be over, but for now, what's occupying the gladiatorial ring is the strange war and crisis in Ukraine and Russia. It's almost impossible to find reliable information and this problem is exacerbated by the so-called discourse on the subject that runs purely on the engine of collectivism. Just like with COVID, no one is allowed to ask questions and all must accept what the media presents as the most valid representation of reality. Even showing compassion, compassion towards the innocent people of Ukraine is not enough. One must accept the simple binary of existence which doesn't allow for questions and discussions. Now, as with COVID, some are questioning and they're questioning nothing rather and accept the reality that's been projected on the cave wall for them to consume. Others go to the extreme and reject everything happening in Ukraine as completely fake. And people fall into this trap because they're trying so hard to prove their point. The shadows in this cave are rather large and continue to grow. In addition, and again, just like with COVID, we see the emergence of capitalist commodification of crisis. Fashion designers are having socially conscious fashion shows. Can you see a bigger contradiction here? It's astounding such irony is tolerated. Is there anything further from the reality of suffering and war than the frivolity of a fashion show? And various companies are hashtagging away with hashtag stand with Ukraine as people do on social media. These companies are trying to make a profit by demonstrating they are aware and concerned And she says this, I should hasten to add, is no less true of companies who peddle conservative ideology in order to sell their products. But she asks, why should we, the consumers, trust any of them? And why should we be swayed to buy a product which has nothing to do with an ethical act of actually doing something productive, just because its marketers are also peddling a popular opinion about the current thing? This is an economic paradox a collectivist society that's basing its existence on Chinese Marxism, engaging in capitalist commodification of crisis in life, and yet it's happening. And finally, just like with COVID, users of social media have taken it upon themselves to change their profile pictures with appropriate signs to indicate which side they're on. Do you have a Ukrainian flag on your Twitter account? You'd better, because if not, it means that you are against us, whoever us may be. She says, it reminds me of the Seinfeld episode in which Kramer was participating in an AIDS walk, but refused to wear a red ribbon. Despite the fact that Kramer was in full support of battling AIDS, he was beaten and kicked because he found the ribbon to be superfluous to what he was intending to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with solidarity, especially when it comes to recognition of human suffering and a need for justice. But these kinds of hashtag politics have nothing to do with freedom of the mind. They're purely coercive in nature. So the events may change, but the pattern is still the same. We are still seeing digital shadows, and to add to the problem, most of the media figures are doomers. Many people join in the terrible chorus of a very limited repertoire. Such, such songs as, it's going to get worse, are you paying attention yet? We are doomed! And the all-time favorite, let that sink in. <laughs> Discourses has devolved into a bunch of cliches driven by algorithmic clicks. Not only is this destroying the language, but it's also damaging our ability to communicate with each other. It is an impediment to man's belonging in the world. What Plato's puppeteers did, and what our reality manipulators are engaging in, is relativism. The more chaos there is, the more ideology there is. The more crises, the more confusion. And, the puppeteers hope, a complete abandonment of truth and objectivity. Now, the ideologues are relying on one notion that people will accept namely that there is no objective reality it's not only truth that's under attack but also the truth lemming like humans will follow what lemmings do as jorge luis borges noted and she says i paraphrase some people are happier when they're living under a totalitarian system but we have to pay what we have to pay attention to is whether the thinking person is being broken down succumbing to the unreality that is presented before us That is a brilliant explanation of what I feel like I'm fighting personally on a daily basis. How do I maintain my grip on reality when everything that's flying at me is is telling me, oh, no, none of this is real. You know, this is what you have to believe. Here the author says, often reality is unpleasant, and I'm not merely talking about pleasure. Rather, what's at stake here is the very meaning of being human. If we don't consider knowledge and enlightenment of the spirit and mind to be significant, then how can we expect to move beyond the dark screen of unreality? one of the things that makes us human is love. And she says, I don't mean anything saccharine by it, and I'm certainly not thinking of the live, love, laugh variety. Love requires action and responsibility, and yes, reality itself. In his book, Love Alone is Credible, Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar writes that the inner reality of love can be recognized only by love. In the midst of what appears to be relativism on steroids today, this is something we must keep remembering. What is the path we are choosing? She says the repetitive forces rely on the demolition of truth, love, goodness, beauty, and everything else that makes us human. We have to reject the form of life that has been thrust upon us by the media and the digital world. Such a form runs contrary to the living, breathing spirit that is within us and that yearns for creation and hope, even as we are cognizant of evil. We have to get out of the cave and shatter the screen of unreality. Put more simply, unplug yourself from the matrix every so often, go outside and talk to people. You'll be shocked at how quickly the world starts looking normal once again.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: Please consider subscribing to my show notes. If you go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on show notes. Just pick any particular day. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll notice a great big button that says subscribe. It's going to ask you to put in your email. Just drop in an email address where you'd like me to send them. And every day that I uh, do the show, I will hit the publish button, and it will automatically send a copy to you that you can then peruse at uh, your pleasure. I'm not guaranteeing that it's going to solve all your problems, but I do want you to understand that I I take very seriously what I consider the the stewardship that I find myself under. And it's not a stewardship to uh, whatever platform you're hearing this on, whether it be a particular podcast platform or a network or a radio station. My, My stewardship, I believe, is I have a personal accountability to God to speak the truth as best I can. And I take that very seriously. In in other words, I believe I will answer to my creator one day for how I used my time and my talents and particularly how I used what influence I may have to help spread the truth. So I'm not telling you that therefore everything I say is, you know, should be written in stone because it's just that right. I just want you to understand that I I do put considerable effort into seeking out uh, good, timely, credible information and then presenting it in a way that hopefully doesn't add more anger or fear to an already distressing situation. Hopefully that makes sense. So I want to come to a a commentary here from Caitlin Johnstone. And, man, I love this woman's gift for clarity. She she has a pretty wicked sense of humor, too, but she is just so capable of stating things with clarity that, uh, that other people, including myself, just don't dare say, or we don't... We don't have the knack of putting it so succinctly. One of the things that she has pointed out recently is that the mental manipulation being directed at us is for the purpose of enslaving our minds and driving us toward destruction. Now, that sounds like a pretty dark thing. Well, what are you talking about, man? Where's, where's the happiness and hope? Well, okay, this is one of those times where facing hard facts may be a necessity, just like, you know, if someone wakes you up in the middle of the night, hey, um, I, you know, I don't, don't want to bother you and I don't want you to take this wrong. But I noticed some flames and smoke coming out of the eaves of your house. And anyway, uh, you know, just thought you might want to know. You do with it whatever you want. But uh, looks like your house may be burning down. Anyway, you know, toodles. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we, we need a good, clear warning. And I think Caitlin Johnstone is, is one of the best of the best at delivering that. Now, she says, you know that you are being aggressively propagandized about Ukraine by mass media and by Silicon Valley. You can feel it in your guts. Everyone can feel it on some level. It feels gross. And she says the split on this issue is between those who trust this gut feeling and those who choose to psychologically compartmentalize away from it. Because if you don't compartmentalize away from it, the implications of this are very frightening. It means pretty much everything you've been told your whole life about the government, about your nation, about the news media, about the way the world works, is a lie. But she says that is the basic reality. If you've already seen this, you won't experience cognitive dissonance when you observe it in the unprecedented imperial narrative management campaign we're seeing with Ukraine. If you haven't seen it... You'll likely experience a lot of cognitive dissonance if you try to square your gut feeling that you're being propagandized about Ukraine with your belief that your favorite politicians and news sources always tell you the objective truth. And you will compartmentalize accordingly. She says that's just how we're wired. Our minds are wired to select for cognitive ease and forcefully reject information which challenges our present worldview. Pushing past the cognitive discomfort and facing reality is the only way to come to real understanding. Now, she shares a a picture of uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky. It's a cartoon of him, you know, pulling open his shirt to reveal the Superman S, you know, the emblem underneath his shirt. And she says, if this picture was printed out and framed and then used as a bludgeon to bash you in the face whenever you looked at an electronic screen, It would feel how all this Ukraine war propaganda feels when you haven't swallowed the official narrative. Now, she says people get outraged when I say we are being aggressively propagandized about Ukraine. But this fact is not seriously in dispute. The mass media have been relatively straightforward about it, though, of course, they fail to mention their own role in the propaganda campaign. She says it seems like those who are new to the concept think that propaganda means making up fictional stories whole cloth, so they mistakenly assume that this is a claim that Russia never invaded and Ukrainians aren't dying and suffering. But all it really means is that the narrative framing is manipulated. They're not lying that there's a war. They're just manipulating the way people think about the war. How it's happening, who's to blame for it, whose agendas are served by getting it started and keeping it going, etc., no good liar lies all the time. The best liars very seldom tell full-blown lies, always preferring to lie by omission, by distortion, by half-truth, by disproportionate focus, and then by uncritically reporting other people's lies in a way that suggests they're true. And she says it's all moving so fast now. Censorship and propaganda, the two arms of imperial narrative control, are escalating like nothing we have ever seen before. The doors on information control are being slammed and bolted shut all around the world as fast as the empire managers can get away with it. And of course, Australia, which is where she's from, is on the front line of this war against mental sovereignty. This is a quote from the Australian. Australia's media watchdog will be given new powers to crack down on harmful and misleading content on social media. If re-elected, the Morrison government will introduce new laws to Parliament that would provide the Australian Communications and Media Authority with more regulatory power to counter misinformation and disinformation online. Under the proposal, the ACMA would be able to enforce industry codes and hold tech giants to account to remove harmful or misleading information online should voluntary efforts fail. Caitlin Johnstone says it's because of all this intrusive perception management that we're somehow simultaneously the closest we've been to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis, yet still collectively focused more on talking about sports and celebrity gossip as though everything is fine and normal. Now she says this is something we could actually oppose if enough of us had unpolluted information about what's happening. The threat is not some inevitable force of nature that's happening to us. It's something that's being done to us, by people, people with names, and government offices. If nukes do start flying and we find ourselves in our final moments, will we really feel okay about having done nothing about it? About failing to mobilize in favor of de-escalation and detente? How about being the first species in history to go extinct due to psychological compartmentalization and a reluctance to annoy government officials? She says the only thing sadder than watching the world die would be watching it die without having done anything to try to save it. The saying that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism is directly related to people's inability to imagine anything other than increasingly aggressive escalations between nuclear powers in the competition-based systems we live under. People literally cannot imagine any deviation from this power struggle between nations, even if continuing on this trajectory means our complete annihilation. And she says it doesn't need to be this way. There's no good reason nations can't cooperate with each other for the good of everyone without trying to dominate each other. There's no good reason we can't move from competition-based models of domination to collaboration-based models of human thriving. I like this tweet that she shares. Uh, she's answering Michael McFall, who says, If Putin truly believed his war would ju- was just, he would not be trying to prevent his citizens from knowing about it. Okay, fair enough. Caitlin's response, if the U.S. Empire truly believed its role in this war was just, it wouldn't be unleashing unprecedented levels of censorship, blacking out Russian media, and propagandizing like like it's already World War III. She says, Michael Parenti said years ago, the ultimate neocon plan, which today has become simply mainstream orthodoxy on U.S. foreign policy, is a confrontation with disobedient governments, the ultimate target being China, to ensure the supremacy of american global capitalism. Now there's no good reason this needs to happen. There's no good reason the defensive Russia China tandem described years ago by Gilbert Doctoro needs to be targeted in the way it's currently being targeted by this war that was deliberately provoked by western powers. She says they're lying to you. They're lying when they say they tried to prevent this war. They're lying when they say de-escalation is impossible. They're lying when they say World War III is inevitable or is upon us already. Peace and detente are very possible. All that would need to happen is the dropping away of this notion that this planet of ours needs to be dominated by a single power structure. That's all we'd need for the threat of nuclear Armageddon to go away. That's all we'd need to ensure humanity's progress into the future. Caitlin Johnstone says, We can simply move from endless escalation to diplomacy, from diplomacy to de-escalation, from de-escalation to detente, and from detente to true peace, and from true peace to collaboration and human thriving. The only thing stopping that from happening is this insane drive to dominate. Don't believe the liars. I've got a link to her commentary. I would encourage you to take a look at what she publishes on a regular basis. You'll find some great food
0: for thought there. This is The Brian Hyde Show.